Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to the Theater Podcast: Intimate Personal Conversations with Theater's Biggest Names. I'm Player One. I'm Player Two in this two-player game. That's right. Yeah, here I we are. I had to think about that. It's <laughs> like, are you picking up what I'm putting down here? Uh, hey, Jillian, how you doing? I'm so good. Happy rainy Saturday. Thank you. It is a rainy Saturday, and uh, I'm wearing my my rain boots today, so we all good. But we just spoke with Chase Brock, who is uh, now on Broadway as the choreographer for Be More Chill, the yeah. viral sensation. I was... So incredibly impressed with him. Um, what I th- I was asking what I thought were very simple questions. And he just, he dove into this methodology and his thinking behind like uh, finger-tutting specifically. And Look it up. Yes, look up. Well, I mean, we talk about what finger-tutting is, but um, you look it up if you don't know what it is. But it's how, it's the language. He described this as the language that the squip in Be More Chill uses to communicate. And so all the squips start communicating with mm-hmm. finger tutting and it didn't even occur to me that he was making a language. Yeah, it's something that when you see the show it just it looks like a cool thing that the characters are doing and then it's so immersive and he creates such a world and a language through dance that you don't even realize and you say this in the interview you don't even realize that this was a language that was created because it is such a part of the world. It's really cool. But you went to see the show, you said third preview? I was right? the third or the fourth preview. Yeah, and and when you walk in, uh, everybody just like freaks out mm-hmm. during all the finger it is, stuff? It's, it's Everybody freaks out, period. <laughs> um, but no, during the, there were audience members who already knew some of the choreography. This is the third preview. Right. This isn't even like, it's been running for a few years. People already knew choreography. People already knew some of the, the finger tutting. It was fascinating to watch. After we stopped recording, he was talking to us off mic, telling us that people send him videos online mm-hmm. and ask for notes because they're trying to learn the choreography and trying to get better. And they're like, I learned this bit. Now what? Like, now what do I do? Yeah, now what do I do? That's just incredible. The other the other really cool thing that he talked about, um, we do get into the story of how he came into Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. And I mean, the show... In in terms of the press was, you know, the press makes it out to be the show that was just riddled with problems. But he kind of tells a different side of it that that uh, we don't often get to hear. And I was really impressed mm-hmm. with the, again, the amount of safety and the and the precautions and everything that they that they did behind the scenes to make the show what it was in a in a positive way. Yeah, and I really like how supportive he is. He he came in to this production. He was um he actually replaced the original choreographer, which mm-hmm. you'll hear more of that story. But he he's very supportive and he wanted nothing but the absolute best for this work and to honor what had been done before and improve what could be improved upon. And he's really just a really great person, really nice person and really supportive of of the arts and what people do in this community. Yeah, just a wonderful conversation. So everybody now, please enjoy this episode with Chase Brock. Here you go. One, two, three. Chase made his Broadway debut at 16 in Susan Stroman's The Music Man, assisted Anne Ranking in The Look of Love and Kathleen Marshall on The Wonderful Town. He created additional choreography for Julie Taymor's Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, 
choreographed Sam Gold's Picnic and has numerous credits internationally on TV, including Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and The Late Show with David Letterman, and even the Macy's Day Parade itself. And what I'm most impressed with is uh, video games on your resume. I think that's pretty cool. Chase Brock, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thanks so much, Alan. Pleasure to be here. What are what are video... I mean, I know what video games are, but how do you choreograph for video games? Yeah, about 10 years ago, um, a video game studio, Longtail Studios, called my then agent and said, we want to do a sequel to this video game that's coming out that is a dance video game, and we want it to be a Broadway video game. Do you have someone who might have the expertise to do that? A Broadway video game. Yes, and at the time, the first game had not been released, but it was just dance for the Wii, which yes. was that crazy I popular. That. I yeah. had that, yeah. There was a moment when everybody had that. So there was a follow-up game called Dance on Broadway. And uh, I created that video game. We did a version. For, we, we actually did a version for the Wii. We did a version um, for PlayStation Move, which was yes. sort of, yeah. <laughs> the Wii version sold over a million copies. The PlayStation Move sold like 5,000 copies because nobody had the, the Move. Yeah, I think, I think PS, PS4 kind of like missed the boat on... All that, it's not augmented reality, it's not virtual reality, it's, what is it? What do you it's, call it? Well, it's also not the same audience, right? Like, people right. who play the Wii want to do, like, dance along to Broadway, yeah. and, like, PS3 people did not want to do a Broadway. It was PS3 at the time, Broadway, yeah. It was PS3, actually, yeah. yeah. Did not want to do right. uh, Broadway dancing. Well, you've now returned to Broadway with Be More Chill, and uh, you choreographed its world premiere, and uh, the off-Broadway, and also you're choreographing the upcoming production of Hercules as well. So you're kind of, like, writing this hyperbolic upward trend of of success here. Thank you so much. And I guess let's let's kind of go with um well we'll start back at the very beginning. Like 16 made your debut, but before that 6 months old, 6 years old. Take me to the beginning. Where when did you start leaping and jumping and kicking and singing? Um when I well, actually when I was 5, I saw a cousin uh like the family attended her spring dance recital and I inexplicably. And I think my parents thought I was going to be bored and sort of they would have to corral me. And I was wrapped. And I uh, sort of demanded, I believe I believe the quote was, I have to go on the stage. And at the end of the dance recital, they actually did walk down to the front edge of the stage and let me like step onto it. Um, and from that moment, I did not shut up about dance class. Um, and luckily, the actually Flat Rock Playhouse, which is the State Theater of North Carolina, mm -hmm. was about a mile from my house. And uh, like we had had subscriptions and my grandparents always went to the theater and, you know, and so it was sort of the perfect place to basically uh, dump me into the children's theater program, which was new at the time there. Uh, and, it, you know, and I think part, part of it was that I learned about theater in a working theater and that is totally unlike learning in a classroom and it creates a real obsession. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it started at five and it has not ended. <laughs> <laughs> what part of North Carolina did you grow up in? Flat Rock. Flat, so Flat near Rock. Asheville. If you no, know. near, okay. Because I grew up in North Carolina too, but mm. I didn't know anything west of the mountains. Mm. Like I knew, I knew of Asheville. Yeah. I knew Asheville. Yeah. But yeah. But like, I, and hilariously, so my dance company now has a relationship with an amazing um, performing arts center in Wilmington, the Wilson Center. Mm -hmm. But I, that actually going down there on those tours has been the first time I've been to that edge of the state also. So I, I weirdly... I stayed in the mountains and you stayed out of the mountains and that's why we're meeting in Manhattan now. Because <laughs> <laughs> that makes total sense. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I, I went, I grew up in Wilkesboro okay. and, and migrated east, or mm -hmm. yeah, east, 
<laughs> which way is the is the right? Mm-hmm. East is the right uh, to to Raleigh, and then you know, of course, did Wilmington and and because there was there the film studio is still there. Is it still right. Screen Gems? Do you uh, have any idea? I don't that I don't know, but I but I do know there are. are yeah. I was just there, and there is crazy amount of film. Happening. Yeah, yeah. So do you have any siblings, or how? What's your family like? Only child. Really? Um, and and honestly, I was you know everybody was supportive, and everybody was you know trying to help me get all my dance classes in, and all you know because I. Once I was a teenager, I was doing summer programs. I was uh, studied at Anne Runkings Broadway Theater Project, uh, did ballet summer programs, and then essentially uh, I was dying to come to New York. Like uh, like my my high school years, my few high school years were a blur of begging my parents to let me move to New York, and um, and they eventually did. And so when I was sixteen, I moved to New York, and uh, so this is my this is like my twentieth year in New York, and I so I feel like in a funny way I'm a New Yorker. I feel so like you, I grew up so here. you did you move by yourself when you were sixteen? I indeed did. Whoa! I know it sounds weird. Um, I, you know what? I was like a tortured gay kid who was not thriving down there. I also had you know been in pre professional ballet programs, and I had been in summer stock, and and I just I couldn't get enough. There was yeah. not enough teachers and hours in the day, and so I think the the lure of saying to my parents, you know, but I can come and study in New York. I can audition. Um, was enough for them to sort of say, well, let's let's sort of try this out. And um, essentially, I had a subscription to Backstage, which used to be an actual newspaper. Oh, yeah. Um, and you could get it mailed to your home. So it came to the mailbox in North Carolina. And uh, there was an audition. This was when I was 15. There was an audition for Susan Stroman's Revival of the Music Man. I had just done the show in community theater in Tryon, North Carolina. And so I thought, well, I know the show. I'll that's in the bag. No try on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> try on Little Theater. I was Tony yep. Gillis. Wow. That <laughs> was my first really book musical. And then uh, essentially, I, you know, I convinced my parents to basically pay for a plane ticket. And um, I flew to New York for a weekend and stayed with friends who I had met in summer programs and uh, went to a huge open call with like 600 kids. They ultimately hired three of us and I got that show. And so I think, you know, it's possible it would have turned out differently, but the fact that I had a Broadway job suddenly, I think everybody just said, okay, go. So were you, I mean, did you move up by yourself or did a parents come with you or how, how did that work? No, I had turned 16 by the time the show went into rehearsal. I begged my parents to let me drop out of school. So I did, they did in fact let me withdraw from school and I went to Blue Ridge Community College and I got a GED. Uh, and I, we also, in a very amicable way, I became an emancipated minor so that I could basically go to the Dodgers office and sign my contract wow. and uh, sign a lease. And so, yeah, I moved, you know, and, and for the first year, basically when I was 16 into 17, um, I lived on 47th Street in a building that was one, one door uh, away from the stage door of the Palace Theater. We rehearsed at Radio City. So I, I lived on 47th Street. We worked on 49th Street. The theater was the Neil Simon on 52nd Street. So my my radius was actually quite small and sort of Times Square based. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. That that's an incredible story. I I have only you're now the second person. The only other person I've talked to who was an emancipated teenager was Ani DeFranco. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So you're in good company. Yes. Well, listen. Um, I, I mean, it was it was a stroke of luck and sort of faith and all of that 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 my parents really saw that I needed to be in New York. I needed to move to New York. And I, I just, I so, it was so clear that I was not thriving there and that I, I could have potentially a future in the Broadway community. And I mean, you know, it is looking back, it is miraculous that the 20 years I've been here have sort of worked out as they have. Uh, I mean, it could have gone totally differently. And so I feel, I feel very blessed, but I'm, I'm happy that they were willing to sort of do a very alternative um, teenage format. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I, 
I mean, I guess quick math tells me you're 36 now. I'll be 36 in July. Wow. Well, happy happy early birthday. Thank you very much. Um, and yeah, the, the industry has changed a bit, but I, I keep going back to to something you just you glossed over it a second ago of like you know being a young gay kid in North Carolina, mm-hmm. and I I am I identify as straight, and um, but I had gay friends in high school, uh, the friends that I knew were gay that weren't out. Yeah. Right. I mean, like everybody's got one of those or two of those, right? Especially in musical theater. In North Carolina in the mid 90s, I had a lot of those. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Was that part of your decision to, I mean, like that part, that side of you, did you know at this time that you were gay and like you hadn't come out or, and you just wanted to get to New York to express this and explore yourself? I I definitely knew. And, you know, it's like I knew I was different from the time I was like five years old. You know, and it was it was really clear, and and I think you know, without like going too deeply back into the trauma of elementary school and middle school, um, I remember. I mean, kids before kids had the language to say things to me like "Are you gay?" Which of course that eventually started, but before that, it was like "Are you a girl?" And I thought that was such an interesting hmm. that that is how elementary school students reacted basically to a obvious gay boy, and and it says something so interesting about like how they felt about women versus men and how, just all all of that. So in a way, it actually goes back that far with me that I remember that in elementary school. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it, I did come out. There was a kind of coming out process, and it, and it went sort of in waves and, you know, sort of in wider and wider circles. And, my, and my, you know, and my family were not the first people who knew, but they knew relatively quickly. I, I, I guess I officially came out to my family when I was like 13, 12 or 13. But it was it was less like me having to declare it. It was more like everyone and every everywhere around me was was telling me that. So right. there was there was really no hiding. Yeah, yeah. That I, I guess I mean it's kind of like anything. And I've t- I've re- revealed some details about myself on these podcast episodes that I previously never talked about. And other people talk to me about things they haven't formally talked about before. And then like once you say it, you're just like ah. Oh. Sure. Oh, yeah. I guess I wasn't as big of a deal as I thought. Yeah. Especially when, like, I think what's important, and you're lucky enough to have your family support you and and be behind you. And I think that it goes a long way. And and I've met people whose whose parents and whose family does not support them, and it changes them. It changes everything. Oh, absolutely. I, I feel incredibly lucky that way. And you know, and it wasn't that it was like I always had that exact support, but I watched my, you know, I watched my dad change. I watched my grandfather change. Um, so, I mean, I think really opening people's hearts and minds about anything is about personal one-on-one experience and connection. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important to come out and be out and be visible. And, you know, it's it's people meeting, realizing people they already are friends or family with, you know, are different in some way. And, realizing that that's not such a big deal. Yeah, some some nature, some nurture too, it, 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 because my parents specifically, they're not bigoted people. They're not closed-minded people. They're just, I, I guess, culturally inexperienced, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, because mm-hmm. they've been in this tiny this town, North Carolina, for a long time. And my wife is Chinese. Mm-hmm. And when I first started dating her, my dad thought it was awesome to make oriental jokes. I was like, sure. Mm. sure. Like, he thought he was being funny. He wasn't trying to be offensive. Yes. He had nothing against... Asian, mm-hmm. the Asian culture. He was mm-hmm. just like, "Oh, are you?" I was like, "No, Dad, you you just you just can't do that. Yeah. You cannot do that." Well, it was important and, that you had that conversation because you know, they came from a different generation. Yeah, he came from a certain part of the country. He, can, you know, all that stuff, and you you knew his heart, and it was a teachable moment, and you took, you know, you did that. So, and it's the same. It's the same with um, with uh, with gay people too. There was there was a, an out gay man who lived down the street from us, and 
when I was in middle school, high school, uh, you know, my dad made jokes about it in a, in a, not, not a mean way, just, you know, like the equivalent of like Oriental kind of jokes. Right. Yeah. And, um, I didn't think anything of it cause I didn't know any different. And, and then when I finally like got to college and met other people and I was like, Oh wait, that, Oh yeah, that isn't, that kind of isn't cool. So, um, and whenever I, ha- I do find those teachable moments, I like to go back and teach my, my parents, yeah, uh, because they're still in that same little tiny town, and they need all that help they oh, can get. Of course, of course. I think I think it's it's all context, right? Like all of the conversations we're in right now do do ultimately benefit from nuance and from context. And I and I think that if you real truly understand where someone's coming from, there is a pathway there for you to help them help illuminate things that are generational differences, things that are regional differences that that. You know, there there is hope for everybody to kind of expand their conception of what is what is acceptable and what is right and what is what language we should be using about yep. other people. So speaking of expanding conceptions, <laughs> Spider Man turn off the dark. <laughs> oh gosh, that expanded what we thought of theater could be. Mm. My gosh. Okay, mm. so you were assistant or additional choreography on Spider Man. Exactly. Yes. I I replaced the original choreographer in something like the third month of previews. So how, ooh, is that a story? Is that a story that you can tell? Uh, that's a story I can tell, sure. Um, uh, I So I had been a Julie Taymor fan for as long as, you know, I mean, I, I probably became aware of her when The Lion King um, opened when I was right. a teenager, but I, I quickly went back and looked at, you know, things like Wandarian and the movie, the Titus film came around, came out shortly after that. And um, there were some DVDs of opera productions she had done and uh, and I saw The Green Bird. Uh, actually, in its brief run um, uh, on Broadway. So I, I'd been a Julie Timor fan for a long time, and uh, I had um, asked my my agent, you know, to try and set up a meeting. I, I, you know, she was like at the top of my list of people I wanted to work with, and um, s- sort of in that way that I just admired her work, uh, I bought a ticket for the first preview of Spider Man: Turn Off the Dark. And I'm not somebody who enjoys. Seeing work that isn't finished, I don't. I don't like gossiping about things. Things that need more tech time. You know, I'm not a sort of first preview person, um, and I, especially having been there myself so many times. Um, and but my my level of curiosity was high enough um, because of my interest in her work that I sort of like it, that date got closer. And of course, everybody was talking about Spider Man: Turn Off the Dark, and mm-hmm. I I just had to go. So. I, I bought a ticket to the first preview, and, it, and it's actually interesting how you phrased it because there were moments in that show. I mean, there were probably five or six moments that truly turned on its head what I thought could be done in a theater, what I thought could be accomplished in a commercial Broadway theater, you know, musical production. Um, there were a whole lot of other things about it that didn't work. Um, but in my in my kind of championing of, of artists who were pushing boundaries, I was a real champion of that show. I really felt like they were trying to do something out of the box, and they were trying to really push every every boundary. Uh, and so, you know, on social media, I became kind of a, a champion of, of Julie's and of that creative team. Cut to a couple of months later, um, there'd been, you know, a, a, one really devastating accident and, and a number of, you know, all kinds of buzz about the show. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and I was following along like everybody else. I was following the New York Times. And um, it was sort of announced that Julie Taymor would be stepping down from her daily directing role and somebody else would be coming in. And I mean, at the time I was like, what plumber, you know, what, what plumber is going to come in and try to put their craft on the work of this artist? And who's going <laughs> to, what you know, sucker is going to exactly come and take this over? Exactly, what hack is going to do this? And, um, <laughs> and then very shortly, 
uh, there was an announcement that Phil McKinley was going to take over the, the sort of directing of the show. And I had never worked with Phil McKinley, but I had had two interactions with him. Um, cut, going back, uh, a mutual friend of ours had recommended uh, me to him as the associate director of The Boy From Oz mm-hmm. many, many years ago when I was really young. And we had a great meeting. He did not hire me, and that was that. Then he had called me about five years after that when he was doing a sort of Cirque-style project in Shanghai, I believe. Uh, and uh, he had interviewed me and, on the phone, and we, we talked about my dance company. He was, that was sort of, I think, the attraction. Um, uh, he was thinking about the modern dance part, of, part mm-hmm. of me for that project. And we had a great phone call. He didn't hire me. Um, <laughs> and so when I saw his name, I kind of thought, well, I wonder if I'm going to have my, my, you know, every five years Phil McKinley phone interview. Um, and, I, and I actually kind of laughed it off, and I never thought about it again. And about 48 hours later, my phone rang, and it was Phil McKinley. And um, I said, hi. I answered and I said, hello. And he said, hey, Chase. (laughs) And I said, how are you, Phil? He said, I'm okay. Can you come to the theater today at five o'clock? And I said, I sure can. And he said, great, I'll meet you outside. And we literally did not say anything further. We didn't didn't say what theater. We didn't say what show. But I I knew and he knew. Um, And he said, bring your reel. So I showed up my resume and my reel. And he pulled me into a, a diner on 43rd Street and basically... He said, here's what's going on. I'm taking over the show. Um, We are going to bring a new choreographer on. Here's what changes are being made in the book. Um, Roberto Aguirre-Zacasa has come on board. They've already got a working draft of Act One that's in progress. Um, The boys are headed, headed, uh, you know, into basically meetings to work on Act Two starting today. Uh, and he and he kind of laid out the plan of what was happening, and and my my reel was ostensibly playing on my laptop during this. I don't think we looked at it one time, um, <laughs> you know. But we talked about about I had just done Lost in the Stars for the Encore series, and we talked about that. And anyway, um, he asked if I you know could watch the show that night, and uh, or sorry, it was the next night. He said, "Can you come back tomorrow night, and we'll have a ticket for you and watch the show, and then we'll talk after." And so I had this like crazy 24 hours where I couldn't really say anything to anyone, but I knew that I was sort of up for Spider-Man. Um, and uh, the next night I came and I watched the show and I was kind of a bundle of nerves. And then strangely, when I sat down in my seat, I took out my notepad and a real calm came over me. And I thought, I know how to do this. This is what I do is make musicals. I, I I've, at that point had worked on something like 15 new musicals that my entire life has been building toward this moment. I could be a valuable member of this team and I could help this show out of the woods. And I, and I could do it for my hero, Julie Taymor. I could sort of um, try and, you know, and I thought really the only, the only sort of stumbling block was if I take this, will Julie Taymor see this as a, you know, person sort of stabbing her in the back and would I never work with her again? And I thought, you know what? At that point, my agents had not successfully uh, scheduled a meeting with her. I had never met her still. And I thought... On the other hand, perhaps this is my chance to work with Julie Taymor. Maybe the universe is bringing this Julie Taymor project to me in this very strange way, and I would be an idiot to pass it up. And so I took notes that evening during the show, um, and I remember that I took a lot of notes, just a, a million notes during Act One, and at intermission, I started kind of looking over them, and I realized that they were falling into categories, and I identified something like five categories of things that I felt fundamentally needed work in terms of movement and staging and choreography. And during Act Two, I kind of tested that theory and sort of saw, you know, um, watched Act Two, thinking of those categories, and basically every note I was able to take did fit into these 
categories. So that was helpful in terms of having an organizing principle. And after the show, I walked out into the lobby and Phil McKinley was standing there and he said, talk. He literally said one word to me. He said, talk. And I said, I think there's five areas that need addressing. And he said, okay, say more. What are they? I started to lay out these categories. And he said, and he said, walk. And we started walking to Westway. We ended up at Westway Diner and we sat down and I had kind of on the walk over introduced the idea of these sort of areas, these broader categories. And when we sat down, he said, okay, then I want to hear everything. And I literally went from beginning to end of that notebook. And we talked through every single micro note. Um, and around midnight, he said, you're the choice. I'm going to call Michael Cole right now and I'm going to let Vano and Edge know, can you start in the morning? And I said, I can start in the morning. And we shook hands and I left that diner. And um, the next morning, I started work on Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Vano and Edge, NBD. <laughs> and hashtag NBD, you guys. I mean, it was so wild. The, high, the highs in that show were like, you know, on opening night, Bono's date to opening was President Clinton. So it's like a truly extraordinary experience. Yeah. That's incredible. And, uh, I mean, it, were you worried about, about all the, the injuries that kept happening? And were you adjusting for this? Or I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, I think, I think a common misperception from the outside was that, you know, everybody in the theater community seemed to, to feel they knew better about the injuries and to, to feel like they were the voice of reason about, about this. And, you know, once you, when you set foot anywhere near that project, every single person from the top down their first priority was safety. Mm -hmm. And it only took one moment with the stage management team to both see their incredible battle scars and the unbelievable trauma they had already experienced and kind of taken on in terms of injuries. And also to realize that this was the most kind of safety-proofed backstage. Um, it was the only show on Broadway at the time that had an e-stop operator, a person whose job on the crew was literally just stand there with a button, and if something happened, mm -hmm. like press that button. Emergency stop. Yeah. yeah. And so it it was, you know, we were the only show on Broadway that had two EMTs on the crew. Wow. So there, you know, again, there is, they were trying to do something extraordinary, and there were some very, very, you know, um, tragic costs along the way. But the idea that, um, you know, it wasn't a safe atmosphere or that, you know, the everybody inside the building was disregarding safety. It's just, it's truly not, was not the case. There are a lot of precautions. I mean, it, it was a gutsy show. Yeah. And, and you know, a common misperception too um, is that uh, the flying, you know, everyone sort of was like, they're dropping people out of the sky. And the truth is that none of the injuries, none of the injuries were actually related to flying. There were no, none of the injuries happened during any aerial cue. They were all things that happen and could happen and do happen in any, you know, big budget production, like mm -hmm. a trapdoor that is faulty and opens, or a trapdoor that opens at the, that is not faulty, but opens at the wrong moment, or an actor who has a, you know, momentary uh, uh, brain fart and steps into an open trap. I mean, you know, there were things that that were sort of traditional um, theater injuries. Uh, so anyway, which is a very interesting thing that from the outside, it was like, they're flying people around and, you know, smashing them to the ground. And it's like, that actually was not ever what happened on yeah. that show. Moving on to Be More Chill now. Tell me how you got involved with that project and part of part of the GIF, as I call it, the Joe Iconis family. Oh. That Joe Iconis is really something, huh? Um, Hashtag Jif. Hashtag Jif more chill. Be more Jif. <laughs> I say that I've entered the Iconiverse, the Joe Iconiverse. Jillian's shaking her head with, at me <laughs> disapprovingly. Um, I love a pun. Don't don't be afraid. Uh, 
my longtime friend, Annika Chapin, who is like one of the great young minds of, of theater today, one of the fabulous millennial minds who's going to take us forward. Um, I, I'd known her for a long time. Her father is Ted Chapin, who's the president of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization. And of course. Kurt File Foundation. And he's on Encore's board. And now he runs Lyrics and Lyricists. You know, Ted Chapin is everywhere. Uh, uh, Annika, uh, we had met over the years. I had I'd done a couple of Encore shows. And so in just various ways, um, we she and I had come into each other's lives, but not worked together. Um, she'd seen an enormous amount of my work. And, and we had had a lot of great conversations about theater making. Um, for a period, she was the literary manager of Two River Theater. Two River Theater commissioned Be More Chill. And uh, one day I got an email from Annika that said, I can't remember what the title of it, the email was, the subject line, but it was like, I have the project for us. Like, unquestionably, I have found it. You have to do this musical. Um, and, you know, she described in the email the plot briefly to me. And immediately it was like, oh my God, I, I must do this. This sounds like the coolest, most awesome thing ever. Um, she included a link, I think, to like six demos of Joe at the piano um, playing songs and a draft of the script that Joe Trace had written. Um, and I was actually, I was in the car at the time, and so I could not yet read the um, script, but I immediately put on the demos and like in the first four bars of More Than Survive, I knew I had to do it. It was so, it like vibrated through every cell of my body. And um, and it was that rare moment where you feel like a piece of material is matching sort of who you are as an artist in the perfect way. And I was also very touched because I had wanted to work with Annika for a long time and we had wanted to do something together. And it had, I mean, it'd been like a decade. And so the fact that it was the first time she had really said, um, you are required for this. I know what you do and it is a match for this musical. I took that very seriously. Um, and so that that was my introduction to Be More Chill. And then frankly, uh, the six demos were extraordinary. I, lo I love them. I laughed. They were incredibly melodic. But Joe Iconis is a master of perfect rhyme. There is no imperfect rhyme in the entire musical being like <laughs> uh, And I loved and appreciated that craft. Um, and then when I did read the book, uh, I was actually blown away because um, I've worked on many, many musicals where, um, you know, writing the book is like the hardest thing on a new musical. And it's um, more often that there is a set of songs that are really, really terrific. And the book is usually written by a very talented person who has got a number of priorities and factors and people in their ear and they're trying to synthesize all of that. And, and the book tends to just be the thing that takes the longest to really figure out. And so often it never arrives at really that like transcendent place mm -hmm. of the best musical books. And I immediately thought um, the work Joe Trace had done on this was actually as good as the work <laughs> Joe Iconis had done on this. And so that made me perk up with a particular level of um just seriousness about that show and then how did how did you approach it because it, it i think like the subject matter is uh, i don't know if it was written like this intentionally but obviously with the viral sensation that the soundtrack became which we'll get into in a, in a second but um it like it resonates with a certain demographic mm -hmm. like beyond what a lot of other musicals do and did, was that the original intent or was it just like, we're just going to make something and see who it 
resonates with, or was it written and choreographed with the idea of we're going to hit this particular demographic that's then going to make the soundtrack go viral and bring it to Broadway? (laughs) If only one could concoct all of that and make that happen, I think we would be doing that on every show. Uh, No, all of that was um, just a a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of aftershock of making it. I think um, Be More Chill has resonated with teenagers not because it is set in a high school in New Jersey, but I think because it tells the truth about high school. And I think that it is a show that does not talk down to teenagers. And and everybody, uh, most people can go back to their high school years and um, relate to what's going on in the show, um, especially the moment Michael in the bathroom um, in the second act, um, where a character is sort of as alone as someone can be while in the midst of an enormous crowd of people at a party. I think that's very, very universal. Um, And something that was wonderful about the making of this show is, you know, we always had uh, artistic directors and and supervision and we, you know, a literary department. I mean, we never were just like artists running in the wild, but we had a lot of freedom. There was not a commercial producer attached to the show uh, at the point that Two River commissioned it um, or throughout the entire run at Two River um, or or for the two years following that. Um, and, and when we did acquire a commercial producer, uh, what a strange way of phrasing that. We did not acquire a commercial producer. A wonderful producer, uh, Jerry Gearing, partnered with another wonderful producer, um, Jen Tepper, mm-hmm. and, and they came forth to, uh, to, to pick up this musical and, and bring it to New York finally. But even at that point, um, they always listened to the artists and, and it was a very artist driven creation process. And I think because of that, we did not, the thing that happens when you go through a lot of development and a lot of workshops and a lot of readings and a lot of, um, opinions is just that you, sort of end up making something that you try to make speak to as large a group of people as possible. And ultimately, it doesn't speak that loudly to anybody if when it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it does work, that's wonderful. But because we were allowed to really just do this thing in the way that we wanted to do it, we made this weirdo, quirky, scrappy, bizarre thing and nobody sort of ever said, we were all waiting for the moment when someone would say, but you can't do a eight-minute drag cheerleader, you know, cell phone texting number that's an homage to Bye Bye Birdie. Um, <laughs> and and you can't have, um, you know, a Japanese supercomputer represented by a, uh, you know, actor, sort of pop idol kind of performer who is speaking in a physical digital language with his hands. You know, um, those those moments just never came. And so the result is we made this thing that I think is very authentic and very, very weird. And it has spoken really loudly to the people it has spoken to. And there is something about that kind of cult um, response that I think actually has driven the success of many of the long running musicals on Broadway. There is it's it's counterintuitive because you are usually thinking, well, how can we make a thing that'll appeal to everybody from age eight to 80? But if you actually make something that's really, really true kind of from one, one angle, you may find that it actually is really hitting the sweet spot of a certain demographic. And I think that has happened here. And did you, did you have that in mind when you were doing your choreography? When I was doing the choreography, I think I had in mind what I always have in mind, which is trying to get to the root of these characters' particular problems in their particular situation in a particular vernacular that they might plausibly be speaking in movement-wise. And so 
I think, you know, there were, you know, I, I got to imagine, you know, what would the movement vocabulary be for a group of teenagers at a high school in New Jersey today uh, when they don't know they're dancing? What would it be when they're at a party and they do know they're dancing? Um, how do we trade, how do we pass movement on? What is social dance today? Well, it's videos on the internet. So we looked at all kinds of rave and hip hop dances from around the world and um, located them on YouTube. And that is sort of uh, how we got to the jump style dance that happens in the Halloween party. But it's not just there because it was a cool dance teenagers might have found on the internet. It was there because the director and I felt like we wanted an absolutely living room exploding, you know, furniture breaking dance for when, you know, of course, Jake's parents are are not not home. Um, and, and so it was really marrying the situation and the needs of those characters to the research. And then of course, my own synthesis of taste and imagination. And playing Xbox. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. my favorite piece of choreography in the show is actually a two player game. Yeah. And I, I love that it's two boys sitting on the edge of a bed playing video games together. And that, you know, being able to introduce that friendship. Like, basically, that is the five minutes of the show where you get to experience their friendship right in the heart of what makes Jeremy and Michael this this perfect duo. And that has to hold because for the entire show, um, you are then sort of hoping and rooting for Jeremy to do the right thing. And ultimately, you know, I won't give it all away, but, but the... That five minutes was crucial. And the idea that we could introduce that in movement um, and, of course, in a great song by Joe Iconis was so thrilling. And I loved um, trying to figure out how we could basically choreographically play video games. Yeah, I, I watched it. To prepare for this interview, I was watching... Jillian sent me a bunch of videos to, to look at that. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. It was very um, cool to get to yeah. do that number on um, Strahan and Sarah on ABC yes. because suddenly, you know, the entire number, the two boys are basically like focused on this tiny box, the television. And, you know, the audience, if you're in the orchestra, you're looking up at them. And if you're in the mezzanine or the balcony, you're looking down at them. But on TV, for the first time, you have really a one-to-one relationship with Jeremy and Michael in the way that they're looking right into the TV and you're looking into your TV, watching them do it. I thought that was kind of a magical um, mo- synthesis of what the piece is and what the medium we were doing it in was. Oh, that's so fun. I, I really like how how technology and the internet has made Be More Chill what it is. Uh, and kind of like the way that that Family Guy is now here because it got canceled and was so demanded by fans that they brought it back. This is like the Family Guy of Broadway. <laughs> I will take that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I really enjoy it. And like even 10 years ago, I think it, this wouldn't have happened. I, th- I think that what is so charmed about Be More Chill is I, th- I think that it was... I think you're absolutely right. I think it's like this particular moment in history and technology and all of that and the particular way that fans felt about that musical, which again was not just because they discovered it on Tumblr or on Instagram. They discovered it, explored it, and found out that it spoke deeply to their heart. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I think you're absolutely right. It couldn't have happened except at this exact moment. Yeah, it's, the, it's this generation of fans, of high schoolers, that now have Spotify as their as one of their normal go-tos like, like I said, even five years ago, like, I don't even, how, how old is Spotify? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, but it just amazes me that that the opportunity comes in. Like, it's it's the exact choreography with the exact songs, with the exact show, at the exact online streaming service that has made Broadway what it is right now. And that that's kind of incredible to me. It's totally incredible. I mean, and, and like, if you if you actually, like, zoom way out from that, 
this is actually a very old-fashioned case of good word of mouth. (laughs) You know, ultimately, like, it is a word of mouth-driven show, but it is in a totally 21st century medium. Totally. Finger-tutting is, you you were saying that's that's how the squip communicates, yes? I I looked up, I was watching videos of finger-tutting last night, too, and I was like, oh. Did you learn any? Oh, I, I... I tried. I was nice. like, "See, to, you can't, you can't watch it and not try to learn yeah, it." Yeah, you're actually uh, pretty great. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't. Okay. Um, well, if you have an opening in the ensemble, let me know. Listen. Um, yeah. Did, where did you learn about that? And and I, I guess where did you? What was the decision? To be like, oh, that's our squip. Mm. It became part of my toolbox, sort of, a few years ago when I when I I think the first time that I really looked at that was on a show. Um, by Matt Sachs and Eric Rosen and Curtis Moore at the Public Theater called Venice. Um, and in that show, it that show was took place in the future. And so I was looking for, again, it was a similar a similar impulse because in this we're we're basically using that as a jumping off point to represent technology, sort of invisible technology. And so in that show, I was trying to look at the future and imagine how this character who was a clown MC, a sort of magical character out of, out of time in the future, uh, in a, basically a hip hop fairy tale, uh, would communicate. And so that, that was the first time I kind of really looked deeply and got into the YouTube black hole of, uh, of finger tutting and, and, you know, digits, um, which finger finger tutting is sort of a subset of the larger kind of liquid in digits. Liquid movement is what you are used to seeing. You kind of know what that is. Digits is liquid movement, but with the digits or with the fingers. And then finger tutting is a kind of more geometric set of images that yeah, feel very kind of hieroglyphic and flat. Yeah. Yeah. But essentially, I, I got interested in it then. And then I think, you know, when this, when Be More Chill, uh, and actually, those shows were only like nine months apart or something in, you know, originally at Two Rivers. So I was, I was in a moment of exploring that. But I think that what has made it the perfect fit and be more chill is that um, there is this exchange between the squip and Jeremy in a new number for Broadway called Sync Up, although this dialogue was always there, uh, where essentially Jeremy, who has really been unable to connect with anybody uh, at school, um, connects with Rich, who is the bully who, you know, first introduces the idea of the squip to Jeremy. And um, they suddenly have a connection. And the squip says, you and Rich have a bond. It's just digital. And so mm. the idea of a digital language and finding a digital vocabulary to express that bond, that seed was really rooted in the text. It's like you're choreographing binary. Yeah. Well, listen, I what I'm dying to actually do at some point is, you know, and I've described some of the the basically squip sequences to different writers because people are interested in this. And, you know, someone said, is it just cool stuff? And I was like, no, no, all of it means something. It absolutely all is. It's very specific actions that relate to what's happening. And what I would love to do at some point is do essentially a video of this, almost with like a pop-up video style animation over it where you really see um, what, what is happening. Because the audience doesn't need to know all of that, right? But the actors certainly do. Um, and it, it has been, you know, and I, and I should also say in fairness, a, I'm not like a master finger tutter. I'm, I'm decent, but there are people who are extraordinary and you can see them online. Um, and in, in any rehearsal process for a musical, you would also not be able to really master this. Although we'll see where Jason Tam is after doing the show, you know, hopefully for a year or even longer on Broadway. Um, but I think that 
you know, that is the beginning. That's the beginning kernel is when uh, Rich sort of first gives the squip myth with that little set of digits in the bathroom. We see it again from the scary stock boy in Payless, just above the shoebox. Uh, and then the full kind of fruition of that vocabulary is really in the number pitiful children. And suddenly it is not really about the fingers at all. It's actually about very angular forearms and full body, almost military exercises. Mm -hmm. And we really did look at kind of like North Korean of army footage, essentially, so that we, pitiful children is like the farthest extrapolation of like the glittering face of fascism. Yeah. Um, and that, that aspect, I think we were, we didn't go that far the first time at two river and making the piece in America in uh, the summer of 2018, suddenly uh, for Off-Broadway, we just all felt like we had a new understanding um, of, of what that might feel like. And so I think it was very organic to be able to push that farther. So I'm, I'm excited now really about how the vocabulary starts with this tiny off-the-cuff off finger uh, display by one character and ends with an entire stage full um, almost of an army in this kind of exploded out squip vocabulary. I asked this question about finger tutting because I thought it would be a short answer. And <laughs> I love that we've been talking about this for entire minutes because <laughs> it's, I didn't realize how much of a story you put into, like uh, uh, the thoughtfulness mm -hmm. that you put into, okay, we're moving digits, we're blah, blah, blah. But it's actually a conversation. It's not just choreography and it didn't even occur to me till like you were sitting here explaining this to me. I was like, that that's just very, very impressive. Oh, thank you. I mean, I yeah. think that's what the best choreography is in theater, right? Like I feel like I feel like that the onus is on us to always come back to the situation, the characters in that particular story. That's yeah. that's kind of the price of admission, I think. Like you used it to invent a language and it didn't even it didn't even occur to me, but it works. It, and I think that is kind of a testament to how well it works because it's just part, it's just part of the show that that is the character. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's wonderful. There's there's a, a moment that was I, I felt so proud of Will Roland because um there is a moment when Christine enters. Uh, it's it's toward the end of the show before we get into the um, uh, midsummer sequence, and uh, she cuts him off. And Jeremy is about to essentially do a sales pitch for the squip, and uh, suddenly, at some point, I think between off Broadway and Broadway, um, in the moment before she cuts him off, Will starts. And I realize suddenly he's doing the beginning of the squip myth. He goes it. And he's starting to say it's from Japan and to repeat essentially that commercial with the, the finger tutting. And it was such a smart choice on his part that like he has gone from a cowering guy in a bathroom hearing this like scary myth to being the salesman on TV for it, complete with the choreography. Um, it's just like one tiny, tiny example of how actors are collaborators in this work. Mm -hmm. And to, when you give someone a language and then suddenly they are speaking in it. I can't think of anything sweeter for a choreographer. That's nice. Tell me about the Chase Brock experience. The Chase Brock experience is my now 12-year-old dance company, which um, is, uh, I, can't, I cannot believe that I have had a dance company for 12 years. It feels like um, a, a long time. And I feel like every moment of that, of running a dance company, nonprofit arts organization in New York in the 21st century has been a 
a labor of love is, is how we'll say it. Um, and we've made uh, 31 pieces, some of which are evening length. So it's a really enormous body of work. Um, something that's been important to me is commissioning new scores um, from terrific uh, people who are usually writing in theater, Michael John Lacusa, um, Josh Rosenblum, um, Eric Dietz, and uh, also sort of uh, going to artists who have made recordings that I think um, would be really exciting on stage like Nellie McKay or Gabe Kahane or David Yazbek. And so um, I've brought a lot of collaborators from the theater world kind of into the dance world in that way. And really the work that we're doing sits on an edge between narrative dance, um, dance theater, and kind of poppy, fun, exuberant, modern dance. Um, and we we tried for a long time to really define it and to try to like squeeze it into some category. And and at long last, we're not really doing that. And we're just letting it be what it is. And, and in a funny way, the original name, the Chase Brock Experience, was like a total joke. We I started working with a group of people, a group of dancers. And when you rent studio space hourly, they have to have something to put on the board. Now it's digital, but it used to be just a whiteboard where you wrote it. So like they would just usually put my name and then one of my... Uh, First, Jason Snow, one of the founding members of the company, would uh, every day modify it to say, like, Chase Brock Dance, Chase Brock Dancers, um, the Chase Brock Effect, Chase Brock Moves. And one day he wrote the Chase Brock Experience, and it was so stupid and silly that it just stuck. And so it was like a parody name. But 12 years later, I actually think that the experience part of it was um, was a very clever sort of subliminal stroke, which is that we're not just doing dance. It's not just sort of dance per se for dance people, but it really is intended to be a kind of full experience. And now that we're, you know, and it's not, it's not interactive in the way that we are, you know, now doing so many things that are experiential in that way. But I think across the board in our entertainment, we're looking for experiences. And we were sort of already doing that in the dance world with design and with, um, in some cases, plot. Uh, And so that, that carries on today. So where do you want it to go? What where do you what's the ultimate goal of the of the experience? So for the first decade we were really moving piece by piece and we were doing kind of we were I was able to look ahead like one piece before that. And when we were coming on the uh, verge of the 10th anniversary, uh, which was in 2017, we I suddenly thought I now can look at the next decade of this. I either am going to finish, I'm either going to cap this off at 10 years or we're going to 20. And if we're going to 20, I'm thinking about years 10 through 20. And so essentially we decided to focus on evening length narrative dance works for our New York seasons for that period. And we have formed an amazing partnership with Theater Row on 42nd Street. We're a resident company there, which is really a thrill because we can have long runs in small theaters. And I love the idea of doing close-up theater, close-up dance theater um, for longer runs. Usually you run for like three performances in a very large theater and that's that. Um, but we're changing that format. Uh, and essentially, basically we commissioned three scores to premiere in years one, three, and five. And we are reviving two of our largest, most epic, most kind of ambitious works from the first decade um, in the interim years. So um, the first of the five years was a piece called The Girl with the Alkaline Eyes, which was a sci-fi robot thriller. Um, uh, The composer was Eric Dietz, and he also uh, wrote the scenario for that, which was crucial, I think, in, in... because that piece has a very detailed mythology behind it. Um, this year, we will be reviving our 2008 work, The Four Seasons, which is a climate change, climate change take um, on Vivaldi's concertos, The Four Seasons, um, with a text by the playwright David Zelnick. 
Uh, in the third year, we'll be premiering a piece called Big Shot, which has a score by Paul Libman, um, and it is deals with the uh, my own family history. My family operated a drive-in restaurant in Hendersonville, North Carolina, from 1949 <laughs> to 1972. This is inspired by that. Um, in the fourth year, um, I can't tell you which piece we're reviving, but we are re- reviving another popular piece that we made. And then in the fifth year, I can't tell you the title yet, but uh, we're making a work with the composer Marissa Michelson uh, that will hopefully also bring in her ensemble constellation core. It would be the first time that we have vocal music performed live as a part of our company's oh, wow. work. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. All so right. that's a little bit about where, what we're up to. That's wonderful. So the other project you're working on in the future now is uh, is Hercules. Can you tell us anything about that yet? I can. Um, Hercules is a, an amazing homecoming for me personally. Um, it's my second musical for Disney theatrical productions, and I am the biggest Disney fan. And I'm particularly a fan of Disney theatrical and what Tom Schumacher has done with that division. Um, so I uh, am the choreographer of the stage version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is mm-hmm. running right now in Japan. And we have had a German company and then U.S. companies. Um, and so it's my second show for Disney. Um, it is my third show for Public Works, which is a visionary department and initiative of the public theater led by my very dear friend, the brilliant Lear de Bessonet. Uh, I did the first two Public Works shows, The Tempest and The Winter's Tale, and this is my return after five years, so this feels so sweet in that way. Um, and they are Public Works makes basically radical participatory theater that really opens up our idea of what community is and who theater is for and who theater can be made by. Um, so it's almost a proposal to the world. Uh, and I, I am so honored to be part of that. Um, and this is actually my 10th show at the Public Theater. The Public Theater has really been my nonprofit home um, in theater. And uh, I'm so proud of, of just getting to be part of that legacy that includes hair and a chorus line and Hamilton and so many things, including the first Broadway show I ever saw, Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk. Um, so for me, it's very special. Um, and I think that... If you've never seen a public works production, it's unlike anything else. It is transcendent in a way that that I can't even try to describe because you really just have to be there. But being under the night sky, when a cast of 200 enacts a community pageant, which essentially is, you know, what we are pursuing is community theater with held to the highest ideal of what community theater can be and artistic excellence altogether. Um, there, it, it, it is, it's just... You know, it's it's the best part of Shakespeare in the Park, wedded to our best vision of who we can be as a theater community and a people community, wedded to a Disney property that has been beloved, you know, for, ever since it was released and, and longed for on the stage, um, wedded to a Greek myth that is like so part of our long, long DNA. Um, I think it's going to be the event of the summer. And it's for seven or eight performances only. Of course, they are free. You have to stand in line like Shakespeare in the Park. Uh, There are probably people standing in line right now. Bless them. (laughs) I hope they have a a raincoat. Um, uh, And, you know, I I can tell you that we've done a number of readings and I've been doing some dance pre-production. And um, we are very, very bolstered by uh, how... um, how things are coming along. And uh, I won't spoil any surprises, but to say that you do not want to miss it, it's going to be a truly unique event at the Public Theater and for Disney Theatrical. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Uh, so as always, we'll wrap up with three standard closing questions on the podcast here. Number one, very simply, what motivates you? Curiosity. I'm well, deeply curious. I, I'm an avid consumer of everything. And I think actually in my life right now, I'm trying to find the right balance between work 
and sort of soaking up everything, you know, like I, I would be in the theater eight nights a week if I could. I would be reading novels all the time. I'd be seeing every movie. I'd be going to late movies. Susan Sontag in some ways was a hero of mine because of her avidity. And I really, um, uh, I like it high and low and experimental and commercial. I really, really like my art democratic and I want to take in a lot of it. And I don't have enough time lately. And so that's the thing I'm working on. Okay, next question. If you could give advice to your younger self or younger people listening now, what would you say? I think that we um, put an artificial endpoint on our story when we think about ourselves. I think that we say, I never did this, or I failed to do that, or I haven't done that. And we, we put brackets around our lives, and today is the end bracket. But the actual end bracket is much farther out from today. And so I think a lot of our struggle and strife is about actually... Um, envisioning an endpoint that we're at instead of seeing ourselves still on a continuum that ends far in the future. And so I think I think ultimately, like in time, it will all kind of unfold the way it's going to. Um, but I think trying in those moments of frustration to take a deep breath and say, hey, like in a year, where will I be? In five years, where will I be? In 10 years, where will I be? Is useful. Hmm. And then last question, if you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what show would you see? A chorus line, of course. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we can find you online on Instagram at Insta Chase Brock on Twitter at just plain old at Chase Brock, of course, chasebrock.com, chasebrockexperience.com. Did I miss anything or do you want to plug anything I think else? those are the yeah? best ones, okay. yeah. You can get more of me and the theater podcast at theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter, facebook.com slash official theater podcast, of course. Please subscribe if you're listening now and you're not already. Rate, review. The reviews are wonderful. That's how we get Chase Brock to the top of the charts. And you can email us, feedback at thetheaterpodcast.com. This is produced by Jillian Hockman. And as always, thanks to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. Chase Brock, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. I'm a fan. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.